Hey everybody, so a quick heads up before the uh, interview starts here. Uh, Dr. Bob and I had some technical difficulties that resulted in the loss of some of the HD audio and video. So the first 10 minutes and the last five minutes are great. Um, but the period between that, uh, the audio and video are of a lesser quality. And there's a few stretches of about a minute or two that are a little hard to listen to. But I didn't want to take any of it out um, because this was such a great conversation that I wanted to preserve it in its entirety. Uh, Dr. Bob and I tried for about three weeks to regain the lost um, HD footage and we, we just couldn't get it at the end. Um, but this was such a great conversation and um, I think Dr. Bob was just at his best and I was so... Uh, thrilled that we were at least able to preserve it in its entirety in some form. So uh, it's definitely still worth the listen. Um, it's a really enjoyable um, hour. And um, yeah, I just hope you get as much pleasure out of listening to it as I did in uh, making it with Dr. Bob. Hello and welcome to the Doubt Society podcast. I am your host, Riley Morgan, and today I am uh, thrilled to announce that I have Dr. Robert Price here with me. Um, Dr. Robert Price is the host of uh, two different podcasts, The Bible Geek and The Human Bible. Uh, you may know him from YouTube and his many appearances on the Myth Vision podcast. Um, he has also written an impressive list of books, um, including Jesus Christ Superstition, Inerrant the Wind, and Beyond Born Again. Uh, his new book, Merely Christianity, comes out January 18th, 2022. Dr. Bob, thank you for joining me today. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, well, I will give you just a, a little bit of background about myself um, just to get us going. It really is an honor to have you on. Um, I believe I be first became aware of Dr. Robert Price when I was in university um, at Bible College. Um, oh. in, in Tennessee. I, I attended uh, a small Bible college there, and I was uh, there to be a pastor at the time and was going through uh, my own dark night of the soul and um, eventually kind of turned to, to non-belief. And uh, during that time, I believe I found you on, on YouTube, as I'm sure many folks do, uh, probably at one of your many talks on uh, Jesus' mythicism. So I'm sure... Oh. You get that a lot is how a lot of people first become uh, introduced to you. So since then, I've, I've tried to follow your work and uh, just finished reading uh, Jesus Christ Superstition, which was great. Um, and uh, yeah, really just thrilled to have you on and get to talk to you. So um, I, I wanted one of the main things I wanted to have you uh, walk us through here is that um, I would love to hear your own story about faith and your own intellectual journey. Um, so if, you know, you just want to tell that story and maybe I can ask some questions along the way and um, we'll go from there. Yeah, I was I was uh, in Mississippi uh, when I was born up until I was, uh, I guess, 10 years old, uh, 10 or 11, I think, when when our family moved to New Jersey and I uh, had gone to Sunday school in a Southern Baptist church in Mississippi, but it made no great impression on me. I didn't go to the services. My parents uh, wisely figured I probably just couldn't endure that. Uh, then uh, when we moved to New Jersey, the closest Baptist church was a conservative Baptist association church. They had split off from uh, the Northern Baptist Convention, which then became the American Baptist Convention. And that's when I think the conservative Baptists split off. And this particular church was uh, big and growing and uh, had uh, great uh, youth programs. It was a lot of fun. Uh, I'm still grateful to them for providing a kind of an anachronistically wholesome uh, youth experience. I, I've in the youth groups where we did all kinds of fun things and we were real devout as well. It was sort of like living in an Archie comic. 
that uh, it was fun but uh, innocent, and we weren't really inclined to experiment on all these sinful pursuits, and we, for which I am grateful. Uh, it was uh, it was great. We we had. Um, musicals that we did um our youth director had been a uh, kind of he'd been part of a group called the spurlows which were a, a kind of uh i don't know up with people sort of thing uh kind of somewhere between that and christian lounge music it's funny but they were they were cool showbiz types and devout and that was uh, that was really helpful well, for me, fundamentalism was uh, very life-changing and um, gave me a great sense of purpose. And of course, also in the eyes of most of my contemporaries, made me into a nut uh, where all the witnessing <laughs> and, and stuff like that, which I hated, but figured, well, I got to do it. Uh, I don't want these souls going to into, into a Christless eternity because I was too chicken to witness to them. Well, in retrospect, even that I'm kind of glad about because it enabled me to uh, get the guts to uh, do things that I knew were embarrassing and uncomfortable if I thought they were necessary. So uh, I look back with uh, mixed uh, feelings, a lot of them positive and even the negative ones uh, were I got like uh, what I would call morbidly or or uh, neurotically introspective. It was no fun. It, in that uh, in that sense, it uh, the daily devotionals and all that stuff. I, I could never get into that. I mean, a quiet time with prayer. And all. Uh, my my brain just doesn't work that way. But again, I tried and was frustrated that I couldn't quite do it. Still can't meditate in any sense. Not that I miss it. Well. Um, I got real uh, devout. Eventually, I, I moved from uh, outright fundamentalism to a kind of uh, what they used to call neo-evangelicalism. Uh, I always say the difference between a fundamentalist and an evangelical is that the evangelical will let you go to the movies, uh, whereas at that time, <laughs> fundamentalism wouldn't. I, I'm not even sure that kind of fundamentalism still exists. Uh, actually, it, there's been a lot of changes. Uh, uh, since then, but I, uh, I was involved with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship at uh, Montclair State College and became the chapter president and planned evangelistic things and so on, and, and, and that was very exciting. But I also got into apologetics. I remember one afternoon at the church youth group, they showed some kind of cheapo film or film strip i don't know what it was but uh it involved uh, a teacher telling the teenage uh, kid that uh believing in in jesus was not simply a leap of faith that there were good evidences for this and they went through the resurrection and why that was the only viable explanation of the evidence etc cetera, etc cetera. and i thought wow this is pretty good i mean i i hadn't even minded ha just having faith in it but i thought this really would be very helpful in witnessing to people they said why should i believe in this stuff well uh, there are good reasons i thought but you can guess what happened and what happens quite often uh, the same way is the more I got into it and I was a daily Bible reader I was real uh, into the Bible the whole time the more I got into apologetics and trying to show you could pretty much prove Jesus had risen from the dead and therefore whatever he said must have been true and if he said he was the son of God then by golly he must have been and so then you should join up um, the more you get into that, the more you're you're uh, stepping off of the seemingly solid ground of faith, which is of course reinforced by all your fellow believers. It's it's very difficult to doubt in that kind of a you setting. You feel like a freak uh, if you do. But the more you get into it, the more you are stepping into the marshy bog, as one scholar called it, of probabilistic historical judgments. If you start thinking it's important that we can show that the the resurrection of Jesus is the best uh, theory, uh, the more you're going to scrutinize it and start thinking, well, 
how probable is it? And is it just a matter of probability? Because you can't cheat if it is. You can't uh, just by the will to believe start uh uh, spinning the case, and I thought uh, the more I got into it, the idea of just simple faith went out the window, and uh, I began to uh, increase my doubts the more I studied the defense of the faith, and that really, uh, really caused me uh, tensions, and I, I wound up not believing in the inerrancy of the Bible, uh, that there were too many things. Like, I, it was real important as a fundamentalist that you understand the text, right? Uh, right. But the more you do, uh, you, you realize, gee, this, this argument showing, harmonizing this contradiction, would I really find that convincing if I weren't just trying to get out of a tight spot? And this and that argument, I thought, now, if I were the potential customer, the potential convert, and somebody was saying this stuff to me, would I find it convincing? Because if I wouldn't, I can't pretend they ought to be convinced. And this kind of thing eventually led to uh, my uh, deciding, I, I just can't uh, accept this anymore. I didn't become an atheist. I, I did become pretty mad at evangelicalism once I had dumped it after being at Gordon-Conwell Seminary uh, for a year. But I decided to look at other viewpoints that I'd always been told were a waste of time. Uh, theories uh, by uh, Bultmann and uh, Tillich and all these liberal theologians. I began to look at why they thought what they did. And I thought, I haven't been getting a fair presentation of this. I began to see their point. And uh, so... I then, after I finished the, the Master of Theological Studies degree at Gordon-Conwell, uh, concentrating in New Testament, uh, I um, was more fascinated by the Bible and Christian origins than ever. Um, that's what happens if you start getting into it for its own sake. Uh, and it's right. not just fodder or ammo for evangelizing. Uh, and so I decided, well, let me um, explore various kinds of theology. And when I was done, Billy Graham spoke at our commencement. It was great. I got to meet him and uh, shake hands with little Billy. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> so I then started a, uh, a this doctoral program at Drew University in systematic theology, which was loads of fun. I, I really love that stuff. Uh, had a great Tillich seminar and a great Schleiermacher seminar, and oh boy. Um, and uh, when shortly after that was done, I uh, managed to get a teaching position in a, a free will Baptist sponsored college down here in North Carolina. Uh, my wife, Carol, and I then married, and we moved down here, and I taught there for. Oh, nearly five years, and it, it was a lot of fun. But I, I eventually got sick of the uh, faculty conference garbage and all this kind of the institutional drag. And um, the, I, I had just started going to church again because there was this remarkable pastor I met while I was a campus minister for a while. This guy was really biblically minded, but, but quoted Kierkegaard and Socrates just as often. He was an unusual hybrid. And I thought, if this guy could be a minister, I think I could be too. And then and time came once I was down here that he left uh, that church. And uh, I was on a visit back to New Jersey and saw some friends of mine in the church. And they said, well, you know, he's leaving. Why don't you throw your hat in the ring? And I said, gee, I guess I could. So I did. And uh, nearly a year later, I wound up getting chosen. And for six years, I, I pastored this 
Baptist church. It was sort of a liberal, non-theological one. It, it had a human needs ministry, food for the hungry. It had a foreign film series going on. Uh, it, just, it, it was just all sorts of uh, unusual stuff. We had a Tolstoy colloquium with his, uh, this is before <laughs> I became pastor, but I thought, now this is the kind of church I like. And um, so I did become pastor and uh, uh, it was it was really fulfilling, and I learned to write sermons and the like, which was a new thing for me, a whole different kind of essay. And I gained a lot from it and even went back to Drew and got a second PhD in New Testament. Uh, and this was incredibly uh, fascinating and, and fun to do. But at the end of about six years, we had a crisis in the church that was financially failing. There were very few people in it. Uh, I kind of knew that going in, but hoped I could help it. And I couldn't really. And so um, uh, I uh, wound up uh, not being enough of a politician and administrator for the church. And uh, I, I left it as microscopic as it was, and some of the people followed me and we had church for another six years in my living room that we called it the grail. Uh, that was enormously fulfilling also. And by this time, I wasn't really a theist anymore. I, uh, I had been a sort of vague believer in some kind of holiness, um, ill-defined, but I began to get into reading Deconstruction and Jacques Derrida and immersing myself in radical biblical criticism, which made a whole lot of sense to me. And so I eventually started working for the Council for Secular Humanism. And I remained positive toward religion in some ways. I, I couldn't take the scorched earth policy that, that some of them, my atheist colleagues did, uh, but um, I, I uh, enjoyed a lot of the things they were doing. And uh, finally, Carol and I moved back to North Carolina and I taught in, as an adjunct in one place and an online faculty member in another one. And that eventually uh, dried up and I passed on into doing uh, my uh, podcasts turned out to be the most satisfying teaching experience I ever had, because uh, nobody who listened to me and sent in questions had to do so. Uh, I was teaching classrooms full of uh, kids who's, who uh, their parents had never been to college, but were zealous for education and made sure their kids did, but they had no real interest in it. And I was able to entertain them and uh, they liked me. So that was pretty good, but it was also frustrating. Uh, and I had to, of course, grade terrible papers and, and uh, grade awful exams. And I uh, was glad uh, to be rid of that. And whereas on the Bible Geek, everybody that's listening wants to hear more. And the, they know what's going on. They have astute questions. And uh, it really is, is loads of fun. And then other things opened up like the... Uh, like uh, myth vision and uh, Gnostic informant and other things that uh, where I pollute the airwaves with uh, religious uh, fanatical craziness. And uh, <laughs> also I write, I've been writing fiction for a long time and writing nonfiction and so forth. It's a great existence. I just, as the psalmist says, uh, the lines are drawn from the unpleasant. It's probably more than you want to know, but. <laughs> no, that's all. That's all great. Um, so I'll, I'll I'll go back a little bit into the story just to ask a couple of questions about parts along the way. So you said that I'm having a little the, trouble hearing you. You're, you're suddenly. That's a bit better. Is that a bit better? Yeah. Okay. So um, around about the time that you were, you said you started to. Um, I kind of want to pick at what were the first things that really started to eat away at that fundamentalism. Um, you had said that you were in, uh, you were an undergraduate, and was it still when you were an undergraduate when you began to question uh, inerrancy? Was inerrancy the first thing that started coming up into your mind, saying, "Oh, this this doesn't seem to quite add up the way it should," um, or were there other little things? <laughs> 
Well, it was, I'd say, equally that and the whole notion of the probabilism versus faith assertion. Uh, that was the thing that really gave me fits. But uh, the, uh, the, the attempt to come up with a, a, a position, biblical authority that wouldn't implicate you in, in these mental gymnastics. Uh, and I remember once uh, I was with somebody else from the youth group witnessing to somebody in a shopping mall. And uh, I heard my friend say, you know, the Bible is uh, the word of God. All these centuries, nobody's ever been able to find any contradiction in it. Uh, and I thought to myself, gee, this is odd. Uh, we switch back and forth between saying it doesn't contradict itself, therefore it's the word of God, to saying, well, there are apparent contradictions, but they can't be real since we start with the assumption that it's the word of God. I thought, wait a minute, is it? And uh, that kind of thing began to bother me in particular things in the Bible, particular contradictions and the like. Gee, what are you, I mean, do I have to say that Jesus was crucified twice or that Paul was converted on the way to Damascus three times because you can't reconcile the details of the different versions of it? This can't be right. But of course, it's equally stupid to say that because what do you know, the mustard seed is not, in fact, the smallest seed on the earth. Does that mean what, what he's using the metaphor for is, is stupid? No. Uh, and and uh, I've always pointed that stuff out. If you're going to have criticisms of the Bible, uh, make it serious. I mean, the stuff like that. All right, I can see the problem. Yeah, if God, if it's from a perfect God, it must be perfect. I, I can see how that would create a problem. But I think um, oh, one uh, evangelical, uh, I think it was uh, James Orr, who was a kind of a moderate fundamentalist. He wouldn't go as far as Warfield and the others. And he said, yeah, th there are little difficulties with the Bible, but it's, it's like looking at an ancient marble statue and noticing there are a few flecks of sandstone in the marble. Th does that somehow ruin it? Come on, uh, grow up. And I, I kind of looked at it that way. Even if you can't quite explain how perfect divine inspiration can uh, coexist with something like this. Is that really who cares? Uh, who needs to know everything? And uh, But that wasn't the end of it, right? Because then you start looking at different theologies of the Bible writers. Now, how are you going to get uh, the James and Paul thing, right? Uh, right. Wait a minute, is it faith alone that saves or faith and uh, as is realized in works? Because the writers appear to think they're different. And and if you start right. saying, uh, well, uh, you know, if we, if we could have a seance here and get James to, to try to clear this up for it, he'd probably say, yeah, gee, I knew I should have put that differently. Of course, I agree with Paul. If you're doing that, you might as well just be honest like Martin Luther was and say, okay, to hell with James. He's wrong. And because he's not a Paulinist, he's out. Uh, you know, but then again, you can't really do that because you're putting profane hands on the ark. Uh, and I realized this just is not going to work. And I remember the last uh, class I had Gordon Conwell, non-denominational evangelical seminary, um, we had this advanced seminar with all the New Testament professors who were no slouches. I mean, they were, were well-read and very sharp. Uh, to see the gymnastics, the rabbinic casuistry and hair-splitting they had to indulge in uh, to, 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 to keep the Bible authoritative in, in a whole different culture, I thought, this wouldn't be necessary if this were really the revelation they say it is. Uh, it's yeah. a sophisticated intellectual thing they're doing, but it, it just seems the emperor has no clothes. And I remember thinking, I, I just can't be an evangelical of any stripe anymore. And, um, and, and the yeah. anger I did have as the pendulum swung, as I got out of it, I got over 
in retrospect, I'd say reasonably fast. And uh, now on the Bible, in my books, I try to be as fair as I can with other opinions. I uh, go out of my way to uh, reassure the reader that few of the people with whom I disagree are just hacks and charlatans. And occasionally there, there are, but uh, they're, they're true scholars. I just think they can't think out of a certain box. And, uh, and, and so I try to treat everybody with respect, which I do have. And that seems to make the medicine go down easier. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, you pointed out a couple of things there. One of them, the the I think you mentioned in Jesus Christ superstition something along the lines of when we get to heaven there's going to be this uh, everyone's going to walk into a meeting and they're going to work out all the theological differences that we all mm. had at one point which is just like mm. you're saying you know the both the textual contradictions and the theological mm. ones um, and then that anger you mentioned uh, in my own journey I was when you get out of the evangelical tradition. You, there is a lot of that anger, but uh, similarly to yourself, that anger eventually just subsides to the great interest that continues in the text and in the study of it. And you know, you're mm-hmm. you're after it for its own sake now. I love that you mm-hmm. said that you're not in it now just for the, you know, just to save the poor soul down the street from mm-hmm. eternal dereliction. Now you're mm-hmm. now you're in it for for that, and that's I think that's great. Um, so that's how the evangelical cast begins to break. You said you then move on to this sort of like Schleiermacher sort of God is, you know, as I understand that sort of liberal stance, it's almost like God is being and being is the ground or like God is the ground of being. Um, you said eventually though, you kind of moved away from even that theism. So what was it that, what was it that took you from the liberal theism to just non-theism? I'd say uh, reading Derrida and and other postmodern and deconstructivist critics made me think that uh, that uh, I think it was Comte who said that that metaphysics is just cloudy theology or cloudy mythology that you're you're no longer believing in like a guy sitting on a throne in heaven with his son sitting in the chair to his right uh, but you you have some vague notion of the holy or the divine what are you talking about uh, it's basically the problem with idealist metaphysics with a capital i that all the actual chairs are not as real as the heavenly form of a chair. And I, I that is so slippery. What are you talking about? What sort of are you predicating of the chair archetype? And uh, I still, I mean, uh, these guys like Plato and others are loads smarter than Imagine being. So I can't just cavalierly dismiss even that, but I it's so problematic to me that I just affirm it anymore. Uh, but I'm very much aware of being just a speck of flotsam in the scheme of things, as Lovecraft pointed out. Uh, I, I'm just, a, I have a worm's eye view. It's ludicrous to think uh, somebody like me could plumb the depths of the of the universe or of God like Paul says, who knows the depths of God? Yeah, good point. Uh, even if there's no God, you're still based on the same thing. Uh, the pipsqueak like me is going to even have a worldview of <laughs> not likely. Yeah, yeah. It would it would seem to me also that when you strip away oh when you strip away the the uh God with all the dogma, like the the theistic God that interacts with us and tells us this thing and expects us to um you know behave this certain way, um or as Christopher Hitchens says, you know, uh wh- who to have sex with and what position, like when you pull away all these sorts of things. Um, then you're sort of left with a whole lot of nothing. Like you said, just cloudy, this metaphysic becomes just a cloudy mythology. You almost just, you know, lose any sense of what this God actually is. If you, like, I mean, if you're going to tell me that God is just the ground of all being, 
and it supports all being. I'm like, well, okay, that that's that may well be true, and I can be a theist in that sense. But you know, at that point, what is the point? Um, so somebody asked yeah. Paul Tillich. Uh, someone asked Tillich if he still prayed, and he said, "I meditate." Well, yeah, that's consistent because he said to think of God as. Well, he didn't quite like this, but pretty much as, as some sort of Santa Claus, and you're passing on your list of requests. It's he says that is blasphemous and superstitious because you're making God into Santa Claus, a, a genie right. or something. And but that's the God of the Bible, uh, a God that gets upset and exterminates uh, tribes and all that. And then you better next uh, this whole. Like Alfred North Whitehead said, is there anything more ridiculous than the uh, Christian idea of of God who creates the human race just to praise him night and day? Isn't it just the uh, the uh, absurd of the Oriental tyrant? And it, it seems to me, yeah, yeah, that's right. Why? I mean, we say God is uh, uh, self-sufficient, the, the divine attribute of aseity, I say, in, his, in himself. Uh, well, then how God cannot be harmed, right? Well, then how can God be displeased? Uh, how can he be outraged? Uh, because the whole notion of, of uh, hell uh, is, and the atonement from Anselm is, you have committed such a grave offense, no matter how trivial it might seem, you're committing it against the infinite majesty of God. So you've got an in like, God is that broken up? Over, over what some little ant like me says or does. It, it's just absurd. And, uh, and yet that's, and if you start taking all of that away, what have you got left? Like you say, what's the point? Yeah, yeah at, at that point, it almost seems to dissolve into, into nothing. But one of the things you just touched on there about prayer, I, I know that was one of the big chunks uh, in Jesus Christ's superstition where you walk through the New Testament and you look at all the different verses. And at first it's ask and ye, and ye shall receive. It's the mm. great promise, right? But then you, as the, as the text go on, you know, you get these, these uh, little asterisks up there that say, mm. oh, if, if you have great faith. Uh, and then it goes to even as far as, well, if it's God's will. Mm. And at that point it becomes, why even pray? Is it not just uh. superstition? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I thought that was I thought that was great. Meister Eckhart, way back there, hundreds of years ago, said the only prayer that's appropriate is "Thy will be done." And of course, it is going to be done. But what you're doing is to uh, accommodate and act to the will of God, whatever it turns out to be, which is kind of like stoicism, really. And, and this, all this stuff about how. Uh, God will answer prayers, but it might be no, uh, and uh, God will uh, give you whatever you desire. Of course, what we mean by that is he's going to change your desires to what he wants. It's like a, it's like a bait and switch sort of thing, and so God, again, isn't interacting. He shouldn't interact. It seems uh, just out of character once you purify the idea of God like that. Yeah, yeah, I can I completely agree. Um, so let's see here. Um, let's talk a little bit then about uh, one of the things that I so I have many oftentimes I refer to your higher critical reading list uh, when I go perusing for a new subject or or whatnot. I've looked over it many times, and one of the things I picked up um, this year was uh, Randall Helms' Gospel mm. Fictions. Um, cause you had that, you had that on there and I believe also an asterisk next to it, meaning this is a really, really good one. Mm -hmm. Um, so I picked that up and I had a note here. One of the things you had said earlier, I think about, um, we were talking about some sort of self-fulfilling, um, oh, you were talking about contradictions and you said when there's a contradiction in the Bible, um, or you said there are no contradictions or on the flip side, 
all the contradictions don't seem like they're there, but they're not really real. You like, it's almost a self-reinforcing circle. And that mm. reminded me of something that Helms talks about in gospel fictions, which is the self-reinforcing circle in Matthew, where he's saying, you know, how do we know this about Jesus's life? Oh, well, the old Testament predicted it. And, you mm. know, it's being written in to Matthew, uh, mm. almost like it's like a, basically kind of a, a, a circle um mm. so if you would would you give me your thoughts on kind of gospel fictions and maybe some of your favorite examples about how the new testament was uh should we say it nicely informed by the old testament well uh for instance that one is a great one um hosea 11 1 out of egypt i have called my son any idiot reading it uh, knows from the context what this is about. It's about God bringing the people of Israel out of Egypt during the Exodus. Now, Matthew was uh, was no dope. Uh, this guy is different places, quotes from the Hebrew Bible, the Syriac version, and the Greek Septuagint, depending on what he wants to highlight. Uh, he was trilingual. That ain't bad. And he's going to be so stupid as not to know what Hosea is about. Now, it's not like he's just opportunistically proof-texting. Some, some critics have said that. They used to, uh, saying that uh, Matthew must have known this was no real prediction, but he's fooling the suckers uh, who, who don't have a copy of the text to look at. It's not like, you know, you can open up the drawer in the hotel room and there's a Bible. Um what he was doing is what the Dead Sea Scrolls scribes were doing, like in the Habakkuk commentary. They knew what the uh, ancient uh, writings referred to, stuff that was now long over. Uh, this king will fall before this kid is old enough to choose what kind of food he likes and all that. They knew that. You'd have to be an idiot not to. What they believed was that smuggled into the text certain revelations that could only be recognized as such after the fact. Uh, and uh, it's like, so Matthew's reading Matthew 11, 1, he knows what it's originally about, but there are code words like, my son, from a Christian uh, standpoint, wait a minute, maybe that has something to do with Jesus. Uh, and uh, and so he figures, well, the Holy Family must have gone into Egypt and come back out. I mean, that happened with Israel, with Joseph, and his father's name is Joseph, and so forth. And, and an elaborating literary parallel is created. He didn't think you could have anticipated that. He didn't anticipate it. That's He wasn't doing what Hal Lindsey thinks he's doing. He wasn't around to say, hey, fellow Jews, you see this? How could you not see that this guy was the Messiah? No, he didn't expect them to see it. He's writing for Christians. This is what was really going on. Now we're party to it. It's just like the what he called the Bible code back in the 90s. These books say this uh, refers to the assassination of the prime minister of Israel. Not that you could have known about it in advance. No, it, it's just a proof, they thought, that it must have been inspired. So once you know this, uh, you realize how it's not fraudulent proof texting, cherry picking to make it look like there were predictions. Rather, uh, they're, they're trying to find out what happened uh, because it was clandestinely locked in the text. Like uh, Earl Doherty pointed this out, that when it says in 1 Corinthians 15 that he, he uh, um, died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried, and then on the third day, he rose from the dead in accordance with the scriptures. I always thought that meant, oh yeah, this was predicted, and son of a gun, it sure happened. And Earl said, no, I think what he means is, this is how we know it happened. It wasn't historical memory that oh my gosh, it, it matches up with this prophecy. No, it's like, th they didn't happened with Jesus because maybe there hadn't been one. I mean, they, like Judas, 
uh, Israel in 4 BC had no mass communication. And if Jesus had come, would everybody know about it necessarily? Uh, I mean, in, in Matthew, right, the three, he's coming in there with his fans and the Jerusalemites say, who is this guy? Oh, that, that's the prophet Jesus from Galilee. Uh, well, if, if you ask yourself, what would this really involve? Sometimes we're, we're too charmed by the narrative to, to escape it for a minute and stand back. But I think that would be another example. Uh, or how, how did Matthew know what Judas was paid for turning Jesus in? Uh, the other gospels don't say, but he knows right. somehow it was 30 pieces of silver. Well, in the same chapter in Zechariah, chapter 12, where we have the entry, your king comes mounted on a donkey, etc., uh, it, uh, it says right across the page that they figured up my, my uh, severance package and paid me 30 lousy pieces of silver. Aha! Well, this must really be about somebody calculating the worth of Jesus in blood money, and so that's what Judas was paid. Now, what did he do with the money? Uh, well, he uh, turns it over to the priests, and uh, or he, he dumps it into the temple treasury, uh, and they say, huh, this is, this, it's pretty funny, actually, the, uh, the sarcasm implied here. They say, this is blood money. We ought to know we paid it. Uh, uh, we can't put it right <laughs> into the temple treasury because it's unclean, but hey, we could make a charitable act out of it and, and buy a toilet for the high priest. Yeah, okay. Uh, right. How did he get that idea? <laughs> well, because I could be mixing up which is which, but in the Hebrew, it says, I, I took the money, and as God said to me, I threw it, cast it into the treasury. Uh, but in the but in another language version, it says, cast it. Uh, oh, what the heck does it say? Oh, into the field or something like that. Right. Well, what was it? Yeah, that's it. No, it's it's a, the, the toilet thing is in the Talmud. That's something else. I'm sorry, it always reminds me of that. Uh, they say we can use this blood money to buy a burial field for indigent people. Okay, so, right. uh, how, so he gives it back to the priests. They use it to buy. Oh, in one version of Zechariah, it says, cast it to the potter, that's it, and the other cast it uh, into the treasury, so, okay, both, and he harmonizes it. I mean, don't tell me that is just coincidence, uh, and, and again and again, uh, how did he know that Joseph was a rich man? Well, because in Isaiah, it says they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. We don't care anything about him being rich or wicked elsewhere, but uh, he figures it must be that, uh, inferring it from Matthew, and on and on and on it goes until I, that was the thing that really pushed me into mythicism. I did this project of looking at various scholars, uh, Helms being one of them, but several other people that were doing the same thing. Occasionally, I thought the parallels they invoked were kind of loose and far-fetched, all, virtually every case, uh, th there were scholarly suggestions that were in the story. Virtually, I was Testament basis for that one. But uh, all the other ones, like, what are the chances? It just seems to me that. The, uh, uh, you know, the old, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Anybody there, including him? Uh, and so <laughs> I, I just figure it's it's much worse than, than we used to fear, even as fundamentalists. Yeah, it's a, I had not uh, really dove into this particular issue until uh, reading this book and, uh, and, and hearing you talk about it, I think, in another podcast. And that's why I picked up the book. Um, but Helms does say in here, and this is what you said, he says, for since Jesus's life happened according to the scriptures, early Christians were confident that in order to find out about him, they need not engage in historical research or consult witnesses uh, in our understanding of these two approaches. 
They found detailed history in the ancient oracles of the Hebrew Bible read as a book about Jesus. Mm. And that is just like you're saying, I mean, pulling the, the shekels of silver. What are the odds that that's the same, you know, off the same page is mm. where they're getting so much this. I mean, to me, that's just um, it's just an inc- too incredible to be in a coincidence like you like you said. Mm. Um, and then it even goes on from there, though. I remember earlier in the in the book talking about um, the uh, especially the resurrection narratives. Um, when you talk about uh, the resurrections of the different, you know, how they pulled all the resurrection narratives from kings and then gave it, uh, you know, into the resurrection of the of the, the man's daughter and all those things we find in the Gospels as well. Hmm. Those are some also very strong ones. Um, but, yeah, it's 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 it was very, very interesting um, to read. Absolutely. You know, that business about the the uh, Hellenistic novels and the premature burial of uh, these uh, women in opulent tombs of the, of the rich. Uh, and uh, then the, the body being taken away, the friends coming back to the tomb to mourn, finding it empty and all that stuff. Uh, I mentioned that in a debate with a well-known New Testament scholar, and he said, there, there are no such novels. Well, I'm afraid there are. Read them in a collective. Uh, that uh, gives translations of all of them, and uh, and somebody else who knew they existed, another scholar said that well, they they really had their head uh, centuries later. They weren't early enough, but uh, no, there's a book by a specialist about them that says now they they all seem to come from the second century. Which it's funny what uh, and do not know. It's just not within their purview, and it's kind of circular. It doesn't occur to them that that these things could be relevant, so they don't even know about them. Uh, it's uh, unfortunate. Yeah, yeah. It's it's and to that point, it's not just that they pulled from the Old Testament to help write and structure the the, the Gospels, but you also find it that they they pulled from just the other stories that were around them. I mean, you see these similarities. Um, comparing Jesus with, um, uh, you know, Caesar Augustus, um, but also one of the things that they, I believe, it was shared in gospel fictions was um, the story of the Buddha walking on water, mm. and how that had been a narrative that had circulated, I think, a couple hundred years um, before uh, we hear about Jesus doing it, and about how the Buddha or the person who was practicing Buddhist faith was uh trying to focus and he began to slip into the water um and that's one of the examples he shares in this and hearing that is you know it's just mind-boggling to see but it makes so much sense right that this is how even today we write stories and we create things is that we pull from the culture around us right Mm -hmm. we we use these things to help construct narratives um so you know it's not like and i don't think yourself or, or helms is saying this it's not like they were trying to be nefarious or wicked and that they're mm. plagiarizing it's not it's not like that it's not a negative view it's just more or less accepting this is what actually happened and what actually inspired the texts yeah for instance who knows how different culture uh, it's actually there there are easily understood uh theories about how that happened like there, there may well have been a two-way dependence between Buddhists and Christians because we know uh, from Clement there were Buddhist missionaries in Egypt in the second century. Uh, yes. And uh, one scholar even thinks, the Christian Lintner, and, and another one, uh, um, Michael Lockwood, who think that uh, scenes, uh, that might, that's the same time frame in which the Buddhists came to, to the Middle East, had a long tradition of Mahism. So could they have borrowed it from Buddhists? And indeed, could they have been? And the theory there is that Christian, well, that Essie Judaized, uh, uh, you 
I so, uh, and it's people say, oh, that's just laughable. Uh, why is that? I mean, uh, I don't see what there was constant trade and travel between the Far East and the Middle East. And uh, so Buddhists may have borrowed Buddhism. Entirely natural, let's say that some Christian heard the story of uh, the Buddha walking on water and uh, didn't really know who the Buddha was. But once he heard it, he said, well, I guess that must have been Jesus. Uh, it's or vice versa, right? right? You never know. Nobody's lying. Like you said, it is, it's hoax or history. <laughs> no, it's not. Yeah, that's hoax or history or uh, liar, lord, or lunatic. Uh, you're you're missing the L of legend. You know, there's another L word that belongs, I think, in that famous C.S. Lewis quote, which is legend, right? And we don't look at legends negatively. Yeah, uh, it's remarkable when you first read C.S. Lewis, teenager, he is so brilliant, how could anybody read him and not be convinced? But then years later, you realize facile is, and the way he deals with the trilemma thing, uh, it's just so uh, scandalously fallacious. No, I'll see it for what it is. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I, I agree. A lot of, a lot of Lewis you get, and it's, 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 it's enjoyable. I, I took a whole course on him, and as an undergraduate, and, uh, mm -hmm. and then some of it you get to it as well, and it just seems to be a little, a little poorly, you know, not, not as well thought out as you might have once thought it was, uh, mm -hmm. but, uh, you know, he has his good, he has his good and his bad moments. You know, his, his good and his is better work for sure. Um, so let's see here. So one of the things I did also want to mention uh, and talk about, uh, which I, I, I alluded to earlier, is your new book that's coming out in January, um, Merely Christianity. Since we're talking about C.S. Lewis, uh, well, I thought we'd go ahead and, and, and bring that up. So what inspired you to write Merely Christianity? Uh, and what's it going to be about? Well, the subtitle is uh, Systemic Critique of Theology. And in, I quote him, him several times early about him. Um, I try to show that uh, a lot of Christian doctrine that is just taken for granted as the fundamentals of the faith is hard to understand in, to the point where it seems like an wouldn't be true or false because it's not clear what on earth is being claimed. Uh, one would be um, atonement doctrines. Lewis says it doesn't really matter how you think it worked, but all Christians are agreed that somehow it did. The death of Jesus put right with God. Right. I don't know if you can really say that because, uh, and then I go through several atonement theories and say, how is this righteous at all that that uh, God is going to let the guilty off the hook uh, because uh, an willing to take the punishment? How is that righteous in anybody's definition? Uh, and various other ones, uh, and uh, maybe the worst of the bunch is the moral influence theory of, of Abelard, who, and a lot of people like this because it's less grossly mythological to nap the whole human race and God's paying Jesus as a ransom, but he outwits him because he's going to take him back after three But Abelard <laughs> said that, um, uh, that uh, no, this the crucifixion was a demonstration of the love of God for us, and it woos us back to Him. Bible passages uh, uh, manifested His love for us because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, and, and so action there it was to get away from all the ideas that there was this negotiation and trade. 
and so forth, and said, well, this kind of rings true, doesn't it? Uh, I don't think so. Like, unless you could show how the death saves, the death does not the love of, of God. Uh, and I said, just imagine you and I are w about to cross the street in a busy city and uh, a, a bus comes hurtling down the street and I suddenly see it and you're about to get uh, squashed. The only, there's no time. All I can do to save your life is to knock you out of the way, even though it puts me in the path of the bus and I am crushed to death. Somebody that sees that his life to save him. Okay, now that would do it. But suppose the bus is coming. I see it. You don't, but he's not in any, you're not in any danger. And I say, hey, watch this. And I dive in front of the bus, bus and get killed. Everybody would say, this guy's insane. He just... <laughs> uh, loopholes and things where it just does not make any sense. What is the Trinity, obviously? Uh, I go into how that developed uh, and uh, what the guys that supposedly um, formulating the one. What are they talking about here? Uh, some people say, well, it's uh, like uh, three, it's like water, ice, and steam. It's the same stuff, but in three different modes. I'm sorry, that's not the Trinity. That's modalism, which has been condemned as a heresy for a couple of thousand years. Um, well, uh, maybe it's like uh, three bulbs in a lamp uh, contributing to the same light. Nope, I'm afraid that's tritheism, also condemned as a heresy. The thing is, everybody gravitates to one or the other so that they'll have some idea in mind which they have to have. Trinity. Otherwise, it's just speaking in tongues. I believe in the... <laughs> what was that again? Uh, you, you don't have to believe something. There's got to be that thing that you accept. But what is this? I mean, it's just, well, whatever it means. Uh, if anybody does understand that, I'm assuming they're right. So I believe in it. <laughs> no, you don't. You don't know what it is. And so I, I say I think that is too true. Uh, and fundamental points of Christian doctrine. Uh, and so you, you really uh, are, are stuck. Uh, you're up the creek because there's nothing to believe exactly with so many of these crucial points. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it, it, when it comes to atonement too, that is one of the topics which really, when I was going through my own process of um falling away from the faith uh and I, I i was struggling with atonement and so i you know i was traditionally thinking about the idea of that you know god gave his life for us like you said like a ransom and then you get on to like the christus victor sort of theories and there's all these different theories but they're all quite different from one another and like you said this is a central tenet to the faith and so for lewis to just say oh we all kind of disagree about how this happened and why it works, but we all agree that it does work. Well, if we don't know how it works, why do we know that it does work? <laughs> you, you know, you know. So it's yeah. I, like I say, well, I know how the car works. A combustion engine. Of course, I don't know what a com combustion engine is, but maybe it's a gopher on a treadmill under the hood of your car. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> But at least we all agree that it is a combustion engine in that sense. Yeah. Right? And we agree when the combustion engine was began and who started it. And we can look at the car and see that, you know, and uh, you don't have too, too many other people saying it's not combustion going on. It's the, you know, the little, the little animal on the treadmill, right? So mm. <laughs> absolutely. Well, that sounds great. I, I, uh, I can't wait to, to read it. Um, I, especially when I got to the end of um, Jesus Christ Superstition the other day, which I, when I finished it, um, you have a paragraph in the last chapter 
um, which I wouldn't mind if reading if that's okay. And then I'll just have you co comment on it um, just because I, I am another one of those folks who wasn't deeply, deeply religious evangelical and fell away from the faith and was very bitter for a while. But I can't get away from the fact that I love studying scripture and love playing with all these ideas and talking about theology. And um, I, I had found in you and your works a, a kindred spirit. And um, so I just want to read a little bit of this and then have you mention it. So here at the end, we have it. Um, we are beginning to glimpse the outlines of a non-mythical, non-theological, non-superstitious Christianity. It would abandon the demand that Christians sign on the dotted lines of incomprehensible creeds. It would make no prayer requests since no one is listening to us, but we would do the listening. We contemplate the fact of the inarticulable greatness. We would rejoice in the charming and edifying stories of scripture, the poetry of liturgy, singing the creed, rather than believing it as we believe that E equals MC squared. As for Jesus, we would no longer anxiously define him, but rather encounter him as a great literary figure and make him our fictively personified conscience as Zizendorf and the old piet, uh, piet, pietists did. Face it, that's all you're really doing anyway, and it's enough. I'll do some witchcraft on the editing. We'll make it. We'll make it work. Um, yeah. So, well, let's see here. I think let's just. Uh, I'll just have you um, basically just kind of address that little bit there. Just address why you've re you've retained your interest in the subject um, despite uh, no longer holding that adherence to it, and then we'll kind of close on that. Well, um, I'm interested in it because it is so fascinating, and uh, there's a lot of uh, nobility and uh, very uh, good things, wisdom and so on in it. It's just that uh, so much of what people value in it, like a promise of eternal life and the uh, idea of being in contact with God and so forth, these are big things, I mean, at least equal in importance to these doctrines and beliefs. And I uh, I am without those, but I don't, uh, like, for instance, I, I don't think there has to be any inherent meaning in life. Uh, I don't think the meaning of life, whatever it is, is better than life. Uh, and... Uh, I kind of like a saying from Buddhism, Zen is your everyday speech. I don't think you uh, need to get, or like the ancient uh, capital C, uh, no, capital S skeptics, I was about to say cynics, uh, the skeptics said, we can't really, apparently we cannot know answers to these huge questions, life after death, are there gods, uh, what is ultimately right and wrong. We, it seems like we can't know that because nobody has ever come up with any convincing argument to end the debate. So assuming they never will, oh, maybe they will, uh, but until they do, like, why is probability not good enough to live your life? Uh, wisdom is a matter of probabilities. You look at what people do, what works and what doesn't, what uh, makes for peace and what doesn't, and you uh, realize what you have to do, what will optimize life and the quality of life for the most people and so forth. I don't think you really need religion for that. Uh, but religion is a, an often beautiful creation of the human spirit. It's part of culture, or Tillich said that uh, religion is the uh, substance of culture, and culture is the form of religion. Um, I kind of like that. Uh, it doesn't have to be any one religion, but there there is beauty and there is wisdom in these religions. And uh, one last little Buddhist thing I like a lot. Uh, the Buddhist uh, philosopher Nagarjuna said that, look, Buddhists have always felt like I've got to flee the the transient world of samsara uh, to to take refuge in the still pond of nirvana. And 
uh, he said, well, why be in such a hurry? Maybe the world of samsara seems like pain and suffering because it's always disappointing you because you're expecting too much from it. Uh, maybe the, the, the beauty in it is beautiful because it's transient. Uh, and, and you rejoice in it while you have it because it is so precious. Uh, and uh, in this way, you can see nirvana within and through samsara. And uh, that is uh, so fundamental an approach. Like, that's the way I feel about, about Christianity and religion in general. It doesn't have what it's pretending to sell. Uh, so, yeah, that's disappointing. But if you appreciate it for what it is rather than hating it for what it isn't, I think that's the way to go. And that's the way I feel about it. I love religion. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Appreciating it for what it is rather than resenting it or hating it for what it isn't. Mm. I think that's a very, uh, that's a great, that's a great note to end on. I think so. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to join me. I know there were some technical difficulties here, but we'll, we'll get them sorted out. Uh, and hopefully we could uh, get this out and let the, let the rest of the world see it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I sure enjoyed it. Thank you for having me on.